Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. A quick announcement that my short story collection, Home is a Made-Up Place, is coming out on February 28th, 2023, but is in pre-order now. If you'd like to learn more about Home is a Made-Up Place, you can visit my website, ronitplank.com, to read a blurb and some advanced praise and find links there in case you would like to pre-order it. It's available at all of the major bookstores as well as your own independent bookstores and online as well. Today, my guest is Buick Audra. She's a Grammy Award-winning musician and writer living in Nashville, Tennessee. She is the guitarist and primary songwriter and vocalist in the melodic heavy duo Friendship Commanders. Her new album, Conversations with My Other Voice, was released on September 23, 2022. The album is accompanied by a memoir and essays by the same name. Welcome, Buick. Hi, Ronit. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to <laughs> feature. Why are you already giggling? You're already laughing. Uh, no, I'm just, it's my nerves. It's just, ignore. I'm a nervous person, nervous speaker. <laughs> right, which is, we were kind of talking about that before we began recording. And it's, it's interesting to me, and I'd love to have you share a little bit about that because you are a singer and a performer. And I mean, how many years have you been performing on stage? Oh, on and off all my life. But yeah, I, you know, and when I was really young, people would say to me, oh, you know, you'll do it enough that your nerves will fall away. And that wasn't true. I don't know what those people were getting into. But, <laughs> I, you know, here I stand, an adult uh, that's been doing it all my life, pretty much. And I am a nervous speaker. I'm a nervous performer on stage. How do you get past it? Like, what do you do to push yourself? Oh, it depends on the scenario. In this case, I centered myself before I got on the call with you because I wanted to just I always invite myself to remind to speak from a place of honesty and not from trying to perform. But when I'm getting on stage, which is a much more athletic and, you know, expressive form of art, I have to do like forward bends, like mm -hmm. yoga breathing and deep breaths because I have to regulate my heartbeat to be able to mm. use my hands and my voice properly. <laughs> mm, yeah. But I don't shame myself because it's just, that doesn't, shame never helps anything in my story, I have found. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a fantastic quote right there. I don't shame myself. It doesn't help anything in my story. So, well, can I ask how far into the performance experience you notice your nerves falling away? Sometimes never, uh, remarkably. Mm. Sometimes I'll be nervous the whole set. But I do try to, for my shows, I do try to put songs that feel a little bit safer for me at the front end of the set to give myself mm -hmm. ease. And then when I'm a couple songs in, I can start to kind of move with a little bit more flexibility and not feel so like, you know, so self-aware. Did you ever wonder if this was really the calling for you because of the nerves? No. No. That's great. Like, I always, I always feel like, I mean, I don't do what you do, but I definitely have been in positions where I'm going to go teach a class or I'm going to go speak, and I get so nervous, and I have to tell myself – well, I'm surprised, number one. Why are you nervous? You've been on stage. You've done this a million times. And I had an acting teacher who once said, you're nervous because you care, 
Yeah, I think that's was, very true. Yeah. Yeah, which was really helpful, although it didn't always dissipate the nerves. But for me, I think it's doing it. Once I get started, it kind of gets better. But I don't mm. know that I could have your tenacity if I was feeling that the whole way through. You know, like, I think it would be so hard. Mm. I guess I've just felt so intensely all of my life in so many different contexts that if I gave that too much power, I wouldn't do anything. So mm. I I have to know that the way that I feel is fine and that I'm going to do it anyway. So, mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about your album and the accompanying book of essays, Conversations with My Other Voice. Can you talk a little bit about it for people who have not yet heard or, or read it? Sure. Okay. So it's album first. I recorded an album called Conversations with My Other Voice. And it's called that because I stepped away from my solo work some years ago. And when I decided to put a record together and come back to that work, I took five songs from a previous chapter in my life. And the chapter held a huge amount of transition, you know, a divorce, my only siblings incarceration, a move from Brooklyn to Nashville by myself, some Grammy Awards, some good, some bad, some difficult, some Mm -hmm. wonderful. And the songs had never been recorded or released properly. I had demoed them, but they really held those stories. And I thought, well, I'd really like to finally come back to these songs and give them their due because I cared about them and I I believe in honoring ourselves and and the work that we make. But I was such a different person when I was going back to them. I my singing voice is different, my my perspectives are so different. So I thought, let me let me make a compromise. Let me record these songs, but let me write five songs in response to them from here and update these mm. stories. Mm. And I served them up in pairs like that. So for every original song from long ago, there is an updated piece of perspective. So Hmm. I called it conversations with my other voice. And then I thought, there's enough here. These events were so momentous, and kind of unusual in some ways that let me write some essays. And it ended up being a memoir and essays. And I released them together, which was absolutely the most ambitious project of Mm -hmm. my life to date. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How far into working on the album or producing the album did you realize, you know, I really need to get these out as essays as well? Almost right away. I mean, the album was recorded in one day. So um, I knew once I was putting the record together musically, I'm the producer on the album. So when I was sort of getting ready to go into the studio and organizing the guys that played on the album, I was like, this requires more. And I, I was an essay writer already, and I'd had a few things published, but, you know, the, the idea of a memoir, you know, sitting in, in memoir classes and in workshops, I mean, people talk about memoirs taking 10 years or more, and that's, Mm -hmm. and that's totally understandable. And I understand why that happens, but I didn't have that kind of time. I wasn't going to record an album and then write a book for 10 years and then 10 years Mm -hmm. later record the album, release the album, I mean. So I had to put myself on a stricter timeline and be very disciplined about getting the essays into some sort of shape to Mm. honor the music. Interesting, too, because sometimes I think there's the part of writing that takes a long time is the actual physical act of writing and finding the time and getting it together and being able to edit it. And there's also that aspect of understanding our story and figuring out what we want to say. And I wonder if because you'd been ruminating for so long and had been able to do the pair type of format, you know, the answers to the older voices, you already had some well-formed ideas about what it was you were trying to articulate. Absolutely. And 
honestly, I followed the structure of the album and it, it was so helpful to already have the album there and sequenced and for the story to, I have long called the album a memoir and songs. So I was like, okay, well that exists. So I don't mm -hmm. have to reinvent the wheel over here. I can use this form, which is nonlinear, right? Um, mm -hmm. You've read the work. It's not like a, the story starts here and then ends here and and the time makes sense in between things circle back and sort of fold over mm -hmm. some of the stories are happening at the same time but i tried to single them out by the relationships that were dominant in each of the stories but yeah it was it was a, a boon to me to have the album done and to also be like i know how to tell this story because i have told it here in my first language which is music yeah, and so actually let's, I'm going to play a little bit of Deadbolt here. Can you introduce what this song is is talking about a little bit and also which which part of the pair is this? So this is one of the newer songs. I'm, I'm so glad you asked me. Deadbolt is a response song written in response to a song called Five. Five is about the end of my first marriage. I wrote it the night before my fifth anniversary to my with my first husband. Um, and Deadbolt is many years later and me looking back at the um, culture of misogyny that I had married into and how little regard uh, was paid to my person and my art even though I brought it into the marriage. I allowed it to be stripped away and I allowed other people to make my husband more important. Okay, so Deadbolt has a lot of power and energy to it. It's almost from the beginning, like the opening uh, riffs, are they called? It's yep. really powerful. <laughs> like, I'm not in a band. Um, but you I are. Used to... You are now, Renee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Imagine me showing up on your doorstep. Hey, but I thought I was in the band. I can't wait. Um, <laughs> okay, and then this song, the other song, you know, although it's a full album, I've, I've selected Afraid of Flying here. Which, again, can you talk a little bit, because the feeling here is so different, and I'm hoping you can talk about this song and what part of the pair it is. So Afraid of Flying is one of the original songs, and I loved this song for so long, and I felt such grief about never having recorded and released it. It, it was one of the songs that really called me back to my solo work. Um, this song is about my relationship with myself in in a dynamic with Joss Stone, who is a British recording artist. Uh, Joss and I made an album together that never came out, but it took, oh gosh, our collaboration took about two and a half years and it was a, a big part of my life at that time and, it, and a not a terribly positive part. And um, 
I actually wrote Afraid of Flying the day that Joss and I would become Grammy winners together, but hours before the Grammy ceremony. Um, so it was an interesting, uh, it was an interesting relationship. It was an interesting day. And this song is the souvenir from that time. I just I feel like your songwriting is so I mean this sounds maybe all songwriters are like this but just so honest and so raw and I feel like thank you very I, I just feel like you're not really hiding you know you're no. really you know showing up in the music and when you were writing I mean I the concept of writing a song in like a day or an evening is just beyond me but maybe what is the difference oh. for you in the process of writing a song like lyrics and music wise versus writing one of these essays what what's the difference for you and how it feels in your body for example oh well music for me is very immediate so I, I write songs very quickly and I write the music meaning the sort of chord structures and the vocals and the lyrics all together in one shot afraid of flying probably took 30 minutes to write so it was mm. a very quick song and I demoed it that day we were having a, a snowstorm in Nashville so I was in anyway songwriting for me comes over me like a little bit like a fever. I hear music and I have lived long enough to know to sit down and listen and to have a guitar in my hands. But yeah, my songs tell me what I think and what I'm mm. doing and how I mm -hmm. feel. So for me, it's very immediate and it, it serves as kind of a release valve in my nervous system. So it's interesting. Sometimes I'll play work that people find to be really vulnerable or really difficult. And I've been asked if it re-traumatizes me because I'm an abuse survivor and I, I have made work about being such. And the answer is absolutely not. That's where it lives. That mm. That's where that particular burst of sentiment lives. So I don't have to carry it around, you know? Mm -hmm. um, the essays were similarly driven in that I sort of, I knew that certain sentences started sections I knew I would just sort of follow my gut and I think it's pretty common that you know the first draft was like a million pages longer than it than the book ended up being the first mm -hmm. draft was 55,000 words and the book is actually 30,000 so it's nearly cut in half so I let myself write everything which sometimes happens in songwriting too you can edit mm -hmm. later which I say to songwriters all the time like you know don't judge as it's coming through, or it might never come through again. I'm very superstitious about that. Like, don't shut anything down that's trying to show itself. So both in music writing and in prose writing, I just allow whatever comes through to come through, and I don't judge it, and I don't try and be cool or succinct <laughs> or, you know, whatever, articulate the first time around. I just let it through, and then I know enough about form in both cases to 
know that I can go back in and and Mm -hmm. chisel down to what's essential. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's so hard to get the criticizer off of us. And yet it's so important. So important. I think especially in the sort of initial stages, like if I'm judging what's coming through initially, why would my creative mind send more? I feel Mm -hmm. like that's like, I'm basically saying like, oh, I don't like this. I'm being too selective, you know? Mm -hmm. So from the beginning of your collection, and I do, you just mentioned about the abuse and I really do want to spend a little time. It's so clear in your collection, especially in the beginning that you weren't parented or cared for the way children need to be. How much did you understand, do you think, at the time that what you were experiencing would be difficult for any child to endure? And and how much do you think you just took in stride because that's what you had to deal with? I knew very, very young that most of, if not all of the adults in my story did not have it together. First, I want to say, yes, I am an abuse survivor, which is its own bracket. You know, I, I feel like there's like difficult parenting situations and then there's abuse and they're, they don't always overlap. My family is abusive today and I'm a grown woman, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, I knew very young that I was in not great spaces. Um, you might remember that in one of the essays I talk about speaking up about someone trying to push me out of a moving car when I'm about five years old. And I spoke up about that at the time and was told that I, that it had not happened by someone that, mm-hmm. who, that wasn't there. So I knew that I was experiencing things that were unsafe and that the people that were supposed to be watching me were not for an assortment of reasons. And, you know, as I say in the foreword of my book, I try not to tell stories that don't belong to me, but I'll say that I was raised around a lot of criminal activity and around a lot of addiction. And mm-hmm. At seven years old, I remember very clearly being like, oh, well, I can't use substances because these people can't. So Mm. I've been substance free my whole life. So just take that Mm. for what it's worth. Like that's how strong Mm. that information was for me as a little kid. I really have such a penchant for learning the stories and championing the stories of people who had such difficult childhoods and adverse childhood experiences. I just, you know, I was... I would read even more from that time about you and who mm-hmm. you were young like that because all of the essays had their own their own area of concentration. I was like, oh my gosh, I want to know you back then. <laughs> I want like to be your friend back then. You know, you just don't understand how people survive things, right? But they do. Yes. I yeah. want to say too, just really quickly, I loved your book as well. And I feel like we would have been friends when we were kids because, <laughs> you know, I, I was, I went to a zillion different schools. I went to a, a different school almost every year of my life. And I know you went to several as yeah. well. And that is its own brand of like, <laughs> oh, just having to, just having to show up and be brave and bring whatever oh my gosh, yeah. sort of pile of rags that you have to the situation. <laughs> Like, where do you belong, right? I mean, where yeah, do you belong? I didn't have and my own it's... clothing when my mom kicked me out. And, uh, you know, I, I, mean, I just could not. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I guess we were in conversation with each other then. Yeah. So musicians, you've collaborated with so many. You've traveled all over for concerts and recording and created a life <laughs> in music, which is, you know, so, so many of us don't do that, haven't done that. So can you articulate what it's been like to be in conversation with artists your whole life? Well, to me, it's to 
to use a sort of weird word, to me, it's normal. It's actually <laughs> been more work for me to learn how to have relationships that are not entirely creative, right? So, uh, you know, in my adult life, I've had to really learn how to learn about someone's office job or learn about someone's teaching, just a, a completely <laughs> different walk of life. Because for me, this one is, you know, my parents were this way. I was raised around all kinds of musicians and painters and, and whatever. So, and so my partner is the same. So for me, it's like, I've had to sort of get my chops together in these other areas in these more academic spaces <laughs> be like how whatever. do you handle square people yeah. what, what are they... <laughs> I feel like to the extent that they can handle me I do my best <laughs> also you know here's the thing when I was younger I remember this is so funny I've never said this aloud but you know you have these thoughts and then you you're like is this an okay thing to say but when I was younger I, I was I thought wow singers and bands are always talking about love and pain and sadness and I remember being 12 or 13 and thinking maybe they just have really thin skins like maybe they're just mm. really hurt and I, I I I didn't understand why it's such a funny thought because it's also really true like not thin skins but they're speaking to the truth we're right? truth they're tellers truth, <laughs> truth tellers right yeah we're truth tellers you truth tellers and so everyone comes from so many different experiences but yet is there a through line in all the different artists and, and band people that you've met over time? Do you feel like, could you say that there's some uh, centering quality, something that you all share in, in no. your identity and expression? No, huh? No, absolutely not. Because I think that there are some people who are very professionally motivated from the outset. There are people who have experienced incredible privilege and the reason that they're on stage is has nothing to do with telling the truth but is mm. and in fact they're not telling the truth i mean so many artists mm. today are performing work by by other people that wasn't written or produced by them so i i think there are songwriters and then i think there are myriad other kind of artists and entertainers and performers but no i mean like joss and i couldn't be more different you know and mm -hmm. and and going into that relationship i thought oh we're the same we're women and we're that's where it ends you know what I mean mm -hmm. like where she primarily writes with other people she does not write on her own the work is largely about sort of happy pleasant stuff I have not lived that life so I'm not going to tell those stories it's not that I haven't had happiness but listen you know it's mm -hmm. not been easy from the outset of my life so mm -hmm. I try to speak to what I have seen and known because I think that it saves lives it certainly saves mine so I'm not out here trying to spread happiness I'm out here trying to be a woman taking up space and telling the truth that someone else might not tell you which is exactly why I wrote that book because we don't have enough books by women who are out here making records <laughs> mm -hmm. and yeah. I was like I've never read this book especially by a non-famous mm -hmm. person this might be valuable or helpful you know uh-huh. I wanted you to read that passage I sent you about regret. I was sure. hoping you can introduce the passage and and read read it for us. Sure. Okay, so this is from the the essay collection and this particular essay is called The Tendencies and it's about me looking back on how I was through the release of my first two solo albums, which are respectively called Singer and Family Album. And I had tried to include 
family of origin, family of choice. I had tried to sort of be the best person alive, uh, but <laughs> using tools that were not beneficial to me and, and ultimately probably not to anybody else. So here's the passage. Some people think regret is toxic, a meaningless emotion we'd do well to avoid. I don't. I think regret is instructive, a warning that you crossed some threshold you ought not cross again, lest you find yourself on similar terrain once more. The things I did to myself around singer and family album, I regret. Many parts of my life were beyond my control, but the things I had the power to do or not, I misjudged. I used to worry about the people I injured with my choices, but these days I think about how much I injured myself. Self-injury is the hardest to forgive and the one we're least encouraged to heal from. By the time fi Family Album came out, my mother had stopped speaking to me. In a moment of hopeful gratitude for being the only of my three parents to participate in the album, I dedicated the record to her. She ignored both its release and my birthday, which were on either side of a midnight. Worse than the dedication was my choice to include a photo of myself and my co-producer on the inside fold of the album, sitting back to back in the driveway of the Brown House. I have no excuse. Old habits die hard. Be nice, be giving, and tell them a better story than it was. Those tapes played loudly in my mind. The very idea of not giving away what's mine is radical. Giving credit, giving dedication, and giving heart like stitches you labor over that no one ever looks at, but that they accept because they believe they deserve them. I want to feel like that, like I am deserving. I'm fairly certain it's an inside job. Maybe it starts with giving less. If I kept it all, would I have more? I'm willing to find out. Thank you. I just am reminded again of, I see it, you know, when I read the essay, those, those sections about what you're giving to these people in your family and how generous and also it reminds me of roles that I've chosen to play in my life that yes. you know when I was and I don't want to speak for you but when I was trying really hard to make sure I, I maintained the place or the position I wanted or sure that people would like me and you know it's taken a long time for me not to kick that into high gear when I'm around people it still happens sure but um it you know it's I really this part especially resonated with me. And I feel like it's a really important message for everyone. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, it felt so good to write it. I feel like that line about regret has been rolling around in my soul for a decade or more at this point. And I feel like as women too, um, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I don't want to speak for all women, but <laughs> as a woman. Well, you can speak for me too. So you can speak for these two women. <laughs> like you and I have some parallels. But for, for myself, as a woman, I have had so much like strange coaching around how to think and feel about the stuff that I have experienced. And if I have said I regret something, I've been told not to. If I've said that, you know, I don't have a relationship with my mother, I've had so many other women tell me what I should do or how it should be and how what it should look like. And it's like, listen, this is the life I both got and have built and I've done my best. And I think it's strange that some people have such a difficult time allowing others who have had wildly different experience, the experiences than they have, letting us just have our story. You know, like I just, mm -hmm. I am allowed to regret choices that I made. It's clarifying for me to say that. You know, it's clarifying mm -hmm. for me to say, this was not great for me and I mm -hmm. did it. 
I don't want to do this again. I want to, on my next album, not dedicate it to one of my three parents who hasn't acknowledged my existence in years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, I don't have to do that today. I can show up for myself and, and have more dignity today because I've learned from doing it the difficult way before. I, I also like how it frames regret as instructive and sort of more kinetic rather than this dead weight yeah. sensation or emotion that goes nowhere. Yeah. We can yeah. learn from the past. That that primarily the past exists for me to serve as a guide to now. So the way that I'm able to stop doing the same things over and over again is to honor how I feel about what happened then and, and what I do have the agency to do differently. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. So I'm wondering about you make it clear that you don't want to share stories, and I'm going to paraphrase, that mm. don't belong to you. You do mention, so you mentioned Joss Stone, whose name I was familiar with. Sure. And of course, you talk about your mom and your dad a little bit. And then you also mention your first husband. Well, yeah, it was your first husband. Yeah. Um, but not by name. And of course, you know, I'm trying <laughs> to find the clues on that one because I'm not very savvy <laughs> that way. So I'm curious how you decided to use names or not use names and talk about the tool you used when deciding which details to share about others and which to leave out sure so and thank you for noticing that there are quite a few primary characters in the book that are not named at all <laughs> <laughs> chiefly my my first husband and my first very long time collaborator um, who I made my first two solo albums with I didn't want to say their names because I don't want to give them power Joss's name was one that I couldn't get away with talking about the Grammys without mentioning. It's Joss and I are too pub publicly linked already to yeah. have played coyly around that. And I did try to tell the story without being, I didn't tell anything else I knew about her. You know, mm -hmm. I've spent mm -hmm. a, many, many, many months and over the course of years with Joss, and I know a lot about her life and her family, and I didn't talk about any of that because it's, first of all, it's not important, and second of all, it doesn't belong to me. I just talked about what happened with us in our recording project, and, and we did have another venture together, a clothing line, which sounds ridiculous now, but <laughs> it, it was true at the time. Um, so, yeah, a lot of stuff. You know, the abuses that I endured, the dynamics with my mother, obviously a lot more has happened in my life than, than I told on the pages of the book. But the tool that I used was this, and it was really clarifying. Like when I had to shave down the 55,000 words to what the book ended up being, if you did it to yourself, it doesn't belong to me. So that covers addiction, outside relationship choices, whatever your choices are. That's not mine to tell. And and I really found that when I weeded that stuff out, it didn't make or break my stories either way. Hmm. You know, that mm -hmm. was just sort of extra information. But if you did it to me, it's mine. <laughs> if you mm -hmm. abused me, if you hit me, <laughs> if you shamed me, if you told me I wasn't good enough to sing my own songs, which Joss did, and there were two other people on the line when she did it, there are witnesses to that statement. That belongs to me. Mm -hmm. You know? That's a, yeah, that's, I, I haven't, I, I love that. I love that. I think that's a great, I love guidelines and tools. So I really like that. Because that's um, when it comes over into my lane, right? Like whatever your choices yeah. are in your story, 
that's about you. But if you came over into my lane and did something hurtful or disruptive to me, it's mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So would you say there was an aspect of the project, the whole project, that was more challenging than anything else to do or to write? Or Oh, gosh. Let's see. It was very stressful for me to talk about my mother, but it was also absolutely essential for me to talk about my mother. You know, my wiring as the firstborn and as her daughter is to honor and protect her no matter what has happened in my life. And that is baked into my original set of thoughts, you know. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for me to talk about my mother. And it's also the most painful relationship of my life. You know, it's like, it's, it's so interesting to think about like how a divorce, I'm like, yeah, that happened. You know, but the stuff with my mother is incredibly painful because it's it's gone on my whole life and it will go on until one of us passes. And it's it was tricky for me to talk about that and to tell the truth. And I tell you what, Rooney, right up until the end, right up until it was like time to let go of the final edits, like I almost got rid of some of it. You know, I, I was just going to ask you yeah. any second thoughts before you decided to publish oh. any of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, there were thousand thoughts you know I mean it was it it would keep me up at night and then I just thought Buick like this is actually your truth and you are not the only woman who has been abused by their mother you are not Mm -hmm. the only woman who has been kicked out of one of their parents home you are not the only person who has been unloved and uncared for and what I have found to be true since I published the book is that so many people resonate with those parts and it's such a human experience story but it's painful it's painful Mm -hmm. to to put it forth Mm -hmm. do you know and and this is almost not worth asking it it almost belittles you know I almost thought don't ask but do you know if she's read or listened to it my mother yeah I don't know if anyone in the book has listened has knows anything about any of it the only person whose permission I asked other than like you know my husband and the guys in my band who are in the last chapter who are so wonderful and funny and and uh, generous. Uh, I asked my brother if I could mm, speak about him because that was, yeah. you know, I in telling that chapter, I am telling something about his life that absolutely doesn't belong to me, but also was so pivotal for for our mm-hmm. entire family. And he gave me permission just across the board to say what needed to be said. I don't think he's read the book. I doubt he will. Not because he's not a loving, supportive sibling, but just because we're so different in the way that we process Mm -hmm. our stories. And our stories are so different. You know, his father Mm -hmm. is that other man, and Mm -hmm. he has been loved and tended to quite differently than I have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But your brother, is he in your life now? Yeah. Like out out of incarceration? Oh, yeah. And he lives a beautiful life in Massachusetts. He has two kids. He has a a lovely partner. Yeah, his story is a very happy one. And I'm so proud of him. And we're good friends today. He's the only person that I said, can I say this? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't send him the manuscript or anything like that. I just in the beginning before I even got into the writing, I said, I I don't know how to talk about Simply Said and not talk about you. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wrote that song at his house and and he said, no, you can say whatever you need. It's fine. Mm. But, you know, my mother and everybody else, it's like they don't acknowledge that I'm a person for years at a time. And so I don't know if someone has said to her, hey, Buick, uh, 
wrote a book. I mean, it's out there, you know. But I also want to say you you center the narrative. Uh, this is an important distinction, I think. And I I want you know, as a reader of it, I I don't see you saying anything about your mother that isn't directly related to your experience of her. Sure. There's no there's no throwing under the bus. No. You know, you have all the right. <laughs> you have all like you have all those ethics in place. You Thank know what I mean? You. The tool is apparent. You're not, you know, it's it's a really hard job, a challenge of a memoirist to but if a so important aspect of our stories is to do complexity and not yeah. to throw people under the bus and to talk about what the relationship does to us. Yeah. So that's all there, right? And so I think not that you owe anything to her necessarily, but I feel like you followed the tool you talked about to a Thank T you. in that regard. It was important for me. I, I want to be able to live with this work for a long exactly. time. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's not about retribution and no. all that. That's not what this is. So what memoirs do you love or books have helped you along the way? So I'm so glad you're asking. I adore, adore, adore and devoured Throw Away Unopened by Viv Albertine. I don't know if you've heard of that book, but Viv Albertine was the incredible guitarist for a punk band called The Slits out of England. That book is phenomenal. E. Jean Carroll's book, What Do We Need Men For? A Modest Proposal, which is part <laughs> memoir, part her driving around the country and interviewing women in cities named after women. It's just a mm. delightful book that made me feel like I was in the car with her. And I I loved the sort of conversational aspect of E. Jean's writing, like that she spoke to me as a reader directly and I thought what a beautiful gift to give somebody who's opened your book. Jeanine Olette's The Part That Burns is just such a stunning collection, mm -hmm. a nonlinear uh, sort of, I think she calls it a memoir in fragments, a stunning work. Mm -hmm. And my end-all be-all writer for the end of time Nora Ephron's I Remember Nothing and I Feel Bad About My Neck. I just, <laughs> to be able to talk about feminism and family alcoholism and her life in film and journalism and have such humor, but also such gravity, I think is just like, I think she's just a black belt writer. And uh, I love that you brought her. In. <laughs> I love that. You're the first guest on both seasons to mention her. And she's not quite a memoirist, but she's such a skilled writer about self. Mm -hmm. And um, I just and if anybody hasn't listened to those two books, she read them herself. So, of oh, course, Nora's been gone for 10 years. But to hear her read her own work and her own voice with her accent <laughs> is just <laughs> such a gift it'll just make you smile and laugh around your house so <laughs> oh, yeah I would, I'm gonna do that um awesome so do you have any parting parting advice for writers as, as we say goodbye I just want to say I never thought I would get done there was a part in the middle of writing this work that I thought what in the hell is happening here and it seemed um so daunting and now it's over. So I just want to say keep going. And I know that's so sort of basic, but believe in what you're doing because it it belongs in the world. Um, and, and another thing that I've said before, but I, I think is worth repeating is that when I was writing my book and then when I was editing it, I read it aloud every single step of the way so that it would sound the way that I speak. It was important for mm. me to have the work be reflective of my actual voice. Now, I know not everybody's 
work is is in that vein but for me it was really beneficial and there were so many phrases that I threw out because I was like I would never actually say that with my mouth (laughs) I'm trying to sound too writerly (laughs) yeah it's uh, it's also a really good tool just to know whether or not you have mistakes if you've got redundancies it's so so good yeah Yeah. you're like I've said the word receive four times on this page (laughs) like find a new word you know whatever it is but when you hear it out loud it's sort of it works a little differently. So yeah, definitely. Read your work out loud. And where can people find you? Where's the best place to connect with you and listen to you? And It's all on my website, of course, uh, buickaudra.com. And my name is so weird that if you look it up on any social media or music or book platform, you will find me because <laughs> it's actually my name, as I know yours is really Runeet. And and I, I loved the parts of our books that both talked about girls named Heather growing up because it's same, you know? I, yes, being yes. Being named Buick is such a wild situation <laughs> why do I have this name why when you're um, trying to blend in it's oh just my impossible. gosh why yes oh my gosh and what about the teachers Buick yeah. uh, is this is a Buick terrible run, run it yeah. um, thank you so much for being my guest and for sharing your work and I just loved our conversation oh me too thank you so much for having me Ronia it's been an honor thank you for tuning in to let's talk memoir for more about this episode and my guest please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.